Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, and we have a special co-host today, Kale Dowell. Kale, say hello to the people. Howdy, everyone. Kale is the uh, COO of Arcos Global Advisors, our company here, and uh, he is friends with our guest today, so he is sitting in because he can uh, ask some great questions, and our guest is a very special one today, David Lumpkins. Now, David is a former petrochemical entrepreneur. I, and I, you know, I was writing that down, David, and I thought, is anybody ever a former entrepreneur? I think that's always with you. So, David, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Glad, glad to be here. Looking forward to this. Well, this is going to be fun. We've uh, heard your story, and, and it's really an amazing one. So I'm excited to uh, share it with everybody uh, listening in today. David, as you know, we always start the show with just a, a little background. So maybe just tell us where you grew up, uh, what that was like, and uh, just give us a little framework for your early life. Okay. Well, I grew up in Austin, Texas, for, for the most part. And I say for the most part because my father was in the Army, so we ended up moving around all the time, lived in Army bases all over the country. But uh, Austin was always home base and Ended up back there after high school and kind of went to the University of Texas by default. <laughs> it was uh, it was the right price and uh, it was a known quantity and and uh, it was a place I knew I could get in. <laughs> and so went to UT, but you know really didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out of school. Didn't have any idea. Kind of started college thinking, well, I'll be a lawyer. Most of my life, I thought I'll, you know, I'll be a doctor. That my mother said that's that's a good profession. You should be a doctor. Uh, but when I got to school, really wasn't interested in either one of those things. But I didn't really know what I was interested in because my father was in the military, and I, I knew I didn't want to do that. But I didn't really know what was out there. I didn't know what business was, and you know who owned things and how things worked. And so I went through college fairly naive, although I, although I majored in business, I majored in finance and, and I kind of had a knack for it and, and did pretty well in my finance courses. But when it came time to graduate, it was like, okay, what do I do now? So I decided, uh, I better put this off a little bit. I graduated a little bit early and, uh, so went straight into business school and got an MBA and got my MBA a little bit early. And by the time I graduated, I had heard of this thing called investment banking. And I wasn't sure exactly what that was, but it, I thought it sounded really good. And I knew it had something to do with the right-hand side of the balance sheet, you know, financing and uh, and then later understanding mergers and acquisitions and, and uh, being a financial intermediary to help companies finance our operations and, you know, initiate and execute strategic transactions. But I didn't really understand any of that when I was in in college at UT and virtually no one from UT went to the investment banking business back then. This was oh, really? 1970s and and uh, it was mainly an East Coast, you know, kind of an Ivy League business, very different than it is today. 
And so I, you know, the one thing that, uh, that, that UT had a really good program at was, was accounting. And so I graduated. My first job was uh, going to work for an accounting firm, uh, Arthur Anderson, which, as you may know, doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, that was my first job also. Uh, so I, I, uh, my wife and I both uh, worked there right out of school. So we know, we know that training, yeah. that training, training uh, ground. So, so how did you get from there into, uh, yeah, the investment banking? But so you weren't doing investment banking for Anderson, were you? No, no, I was a rank raw auditor. Yeah, kind of starting yeah. at the bottom, ticking. Yeah, me too. Ticking yeah. time, <laughs> and uh, and and I, <laughs> I arrived and went to work and uh, started planning my departure. Sort of from from day one, it I really did learn a lot. It allowed me to get my feet in the business world, but but it really wasn't for me. But I wanted to stay a respectable period of time. And uh, I ended up staying about two years, sort of got the first promotion. So, you know, it would kind of look like I didn't uh, get pulled out at the, at the first opportunity. But then I just weaseled my way into a regional investment bank called Rotan Mosley. And oh, yeah. if you have any older guys in your, <laughs> on the podcast, they may remember that name. Uh, Rotan was a, a mainly energy-focused regional investment banking firm. It had a really good reputation at the time. It, it was small, and uh, and I I can't remember exactly how I made contact with the guy who ran the investment banking group, but went in and sold myself and got a job, and and uh, it was it was a real it was a real eye opener. But it was a lot of fun. Got exposed to a lot of things, and then Rotan got acquired by Payne Weber uh, three or four years after I got there. And and most of us really didn't want to work for Payne Weber. Uh, but Morgan Stanley was the advisor to Rotan on the transaction. Oh, okay. And because of that, I got to know some of the Morgan Stanley guys. And, and one of them had to be a very senior guy who was well-known and, and well-respected in the firm. And... Uh, and so he he assisted me in in getting interviews at the firm, and when it had this guy's name on my interview sheet, people paid attention. So right. So so I went up to New York and uh, interviewed and, and got a job, and uh, and then my eyes really got opened. We we actually moved to New York, lived in Connecticut, had one child, was married with one child at the time we went up there, and then uh, and then ended up having. Two kids in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. So I was commuting on the train into work, but really traveling almost all the time. In fact, my second year up there, uh, I spent four months in Houston because I was working on the sale of uh, Penteco Oil Company back in 1988, maybe. Yes. Yeah. So my wife wasn't particularly happy about that. See, she was up in Connecticut, and I was spending every week back in Houston. But uh, but it, but it all worked out, and you know, I, we had planned to stay up there really just a short period of time, just kind of get my feet wet in the business, and then come back to Texas, which a whole lot of Texans do when they go to New York. And uh, but we woke up one day; it had been five years, and we really liked living in Connecticut, and it was it was great fun, just beautiful part of the world, had a great life. And uh, but we. Um, uh, I got a call one day from another firm that had offices in 
Texas. Uh, Morgan Stanley at that time did not have any offices in Texas. And this other firm made me an offer to come back to Texas. And <laughs> I immediately got excited about that when when the, the opportunity prevented, presented itself. So about 1990, we moved back to Houston with what was then First Boston, became Credit Suisse. They had a very big presence in uh, in Houston, very prominent presence in Houston, and and uh, so that was my entree back to uh, back to Texas. Then, ironically, five years after that, Morgan Stanley came calling and said, "You know, we really need an office in Texas. Why why don't you come back and open the office for us?" So I I did that in in 1995, and and. Uh, uh, by that time, I had spent 15 years in the business, and I'd probably gotten the last promotion I was going to get. I was a managing director. I was running the Southwest region, and you know that was that was really all I aspired to in the business. Any anything more than that would have required a move back to New York, and I wasn't going to do that. And and so I, I sort of got to a point where I said, you know, this is this is. Uh, you know, time for to really take stock and figure out what I want to do with the second half of my career. And so while I was in my early forties, I guess I was about forty-three, uh, I said, look, I'm gonna I've learned an awful lot in that business and I'm gonna try to, you know, use what I've learned in an entrepreneurial endeavor. So I left the firm without really a landing place. I left the firm with an idea to find a deal and get it financed, and and really, you know, pursue a true entrepreneurial endeavor. And a lot of people at that time were leaving to go into private equity and things like that. And that was attractive to me, but I, that's not the angle I wanted to take. I really wanted to run a company, to build a company. And so, long story short, met a guy who had a lot of experience in the petrochemical world, and and in the uh, the midstream uh, energy world, and he had a lot of good ideas, but didn't know how to turn those ideas into reality. And I knew how to make things happen, but you know didn't didn't have the industry uh, uh, expertise that he did. So we made a good partnership, and uh, and we teamed up with a firm in New York called Lindsey Goldberg, a private equity firm, and, and they made a substantial. Commitment to Bacchus, and we ended up building two companies. One was a midstream business in Louisiana, and then one was a petrochemical business that we built essentially from scratch on the on the Houston Ship Channel, and ultimately took public. And well, uh, before we go too far, if I can uh, interrupt just for a minute, I'm back to a couple of these pieces of the story that I want to highlight. First one is just a crazy sort of coincidence. Like my first three jobs were Anderson, Payne Weber, Morgan Stanley. So oh, wow. I was following you around. I was actually hired out of Anderson to be an auditor for Payne Weber. And the only reason I wasn't in New York was that they had extra space that Rotan had left. Wow. <laughs> and so wow. I've been following you around like a That's decade incredible. behind you. Uh, so this is, this is, I don't think I've ever met anybody with almost the exact same three things on the resume to start, but no, it's, it's funny. I was with dinner with some, uh, retired senior executives a, f a few weeks ago and three of us present started our careers at Arthur Anderson. It's, it's, it's uh, that was, it was a heck of a place, but you know, you certainly learned how to work hard, but it was yeah. a bunch of smart people. So I, I, I enjoyed my two years also. 
at that place. But one of the things we were talking about before we start recording was, you know, these days I was commenting on how, you know, I was just up in Chicago with my youngest daughter, who's a senior in college. And uh, one of her, uh, we were having an end of banquet. She plays field hockey. So she, we were having a little end of ba- year banquet deal. And one of the young ladies on our team is going to I- investment banking. And I could tell that this was a probably a road for private equity, uh, maybe after a few years. And you were commenting on that. Do you mind just sharing uh, your take? Because you spent 17 years, if I'm not mistaken, as an investment banker. Yeah, between Rotan and Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse and then back to Morgan Stanley, it was about 17 years. So I was 43 when I left. I mean, that's that's not... So the way I sort of thought about it was, I, I see these younger people now doing two, five, maybe years, kind of an in investment banking. It, yeah. Can you kind of maybe just talk about the difference? Yeah. I just think that's interesting. Yeah. So when I started in investment banking at Morgan Stanley, people stayed longer. A lot of people yeah. stayed their whole career. Yeah. And if you made managing directors pretty lucrative, that made it hard to leave. <laughs> and uh, and and so. People really aspired to um, spend spend a lot of time there because you you could spend your whole career and yeah have a, a pretty good nest egg by the time you finally retired. And I think the retirement age was fifty five, right? Where they 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 kicked you out the door at fifty five, but that began to change. Back in those days, the private equity business was at its infancy. Yeah, and you know KKR had just started, and there were a handful of names. Uh, but it was it was a very small industry, uh, and the people people actually sort of looked down their nose at the business. Wow, investment banking. I'm not sure we want to do business with these folks. It, you know, they're buying companies and adding debt and stripping out assets. Okay, and that and that was sort of the model of yeah. It was to buy existing mature businesses, put a bunch of debt on a small amount of equity. Pay down the debt, and that's how you made your money. That's how you're right. Right, you're just paying down debt, and it now it's totally different. Now, now, of course, private equity business is gargantuan, and and the model is not so much just buying mature businesses to pay down the debt. You want to build businesses, and it's buying immature businesses or helping to finance entrepreneurs much more than it is. You know, just take it, taking something over and leveraging it up, and, and and it's just become an incredible engine for economic activity in in the U.S. economy, and and now there are dozens, hundreds of firms. There, there are there are so many firms that have multi billion dollar funds that you never heard of. It's 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 really quite impressive, and it's become just a major dimension of the overall. Particularly U.S., but really Europe as well, and other places around the world. There are some funds that just focus on Asia, for example. Right. But it's become an exceedingly component, important component of uh, of the U.S. economy or the global economy. The number of public companies is actually going down, which is extraordinary. How could that be? And it's because there's so much private equity. If you don't want to go public, you don't have to go public. Exactly. And if you want to monetize. You can monetize to another private equity firm. One of the things that's happening. Yeah, you just keep moving up the chain, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all that said, now the industry's huge. 
And private equity, frankly, is more fun. It's more fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But actually, you know, being close to building the companies than it is just being an intermediary. So, so now the pattern is young people get out, they get an investment banking, they go through the analyst program, they get their training, and then try to get into private equity as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a that's a great primer on the industry. I think I think that history is very interesting, and uh, I think there's some younger people that are uh, probably intrigued by that that history. I know I was, and and I think you know it's funny as you were talking, and because I know this next piece of the story, I can't wait for you to share it about your entrepreneurial journey. But I just it, I just recalled this picture that I sort of reposted on uh, LinkedIn over the weekend that was talking about uh, the caption was moving from a stable job to entrepreneurship. And it showed it was a short video of a guy crossing what looked like a very narrow, shallow stream. And he slowly takes off his shoes and socks, takes two two steps and disappears. It was like 10 feet deep. Yeah. And then he reappears yeah. like, what, what happened? So I know it was a little like that. So, I mean, yeah. you have this, I'm just painting the scene for everybody. Yeah. You, you have this big job. You're making a bunch of money. Life is good. Why rock the boat? You find this yeah. guy who's like not really like you. Let's right. be. I mean, really as an different. industry guy, you're you're doing the yeah. blue chip service job. What really? How did you have the uh, you, you, just the impetus? How did you have? What prompted that big of a change? Well, I knew I I knew I wanted to make a change. I sort of felt like I had grown as much as I was going to grow in the, yes. you know, you learn a lot. Yeah. And by, by your 15th year, you know, you, you do know a lot. You've gotten better at the business. Your judgment is, is pretty good at that job. Right. And if you just stick, stick with it, I think you get a little stale and I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't want that to happen. And, uh, I'm going to take a little digression. Here. Sure, go ahead. I went to a, a couple of years before I left Morgan Stanley, I went to a, a gathering, a conference at Lady Lodge. Lady Lodge. Yeah, sure. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the Butt Family's re- retreat center out at, in uh, Lincoln, Texas. And, and there was a guy talking about, um, one of the speakers talked a lot about you know, family time and you need to spend all this, you know, need to be a family man first, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then you would break into these small groups. And, and I said, you know, there was maybe 10 people in this group and I didn't know any of them. A lot of them were from San Antonio. And I sort of spoke up and said, you know, I don't really agree with that. I mean, of course, we (laughs) spend time with our families, but you know, we also need to we also need to be aggressive in our jobs. We need to make a difference, right. you know. And and uh, everybody sort of listened to me politely, and uh, and you know, just didn't really didn't really say anything, didn't contradict. Uh-huh. Small group. Then we went back to the main group, and the next speaker was then the general counsel of EDS. Yeah, and he went through you know his career, and he was the busiest guy I've ever heard. Right. And had really EDS. That was Ross Perot's firm. Yeah. Would, uh, she, she might success back, back in those days. 
And so then we broke off in our small group again. And I said, see, did you hear him? <laughs> and then, and then one of, one of them finally spoke up. They decided I don't, we're not going to be polite anymore. And one of them said in two years, he won't be at EDS and you won't be at Morgan Stanley. And I said, what, what, what are you talking about? You don't even know me. <laughs> well, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. That guy wasn't at EDS anymore, and I wasn't at Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. And, and for, diff- for, for entirely different reasons. I'm not a, even sure exactly what the reason he left was. But I, I knew it was time for me to go a different path. And when I, when I made that decision, I was almost relieved. Interesting. There was, there was a sense of relief because the investment banking business, it is exceedingly demanding. Yeah, yeah. A lot of hours is the reputation, the client calls, they need it now, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Something happens on Friday and right. we're working all weekend and, and, and that can be fun for a little while, but you know, but if you're the senior guy, you may not be in the office, but you may be on the phone with them all weekend. And <clears throat> so David, let me ask you this. If I can go back to that sort of prophetic word you got from this guy in the small group that you didn't know. What what was your interpretation of that at looking back? Was that just sort of a prophetic word or was it like, hey man, you're going so hard, you're gonna break in two years? Like what what do you where do you think that came from? Have you kind of thought well, about that? You you know, I I that's a good question. I maybe it was. Maybe that was a prophetic word. That's not a term I use. For I know, but I mean, <laughs> neither that much, but it was just sort of interesting that I don't know. It was like uh he he sort of saw it, you know? So and and so I remember riding back, driving from San Antonio or Leakey back to Houston with my wife. And we talked about that. And I said, well, maybe I should make a change. Okay. And, and, and then all of a sudden I kind of had a sense of relief, you know, this thing yeah. coming to an end. That's and, a, that's a really good sign, right? That, you know, you're onto something when you have that stress yeah. fall off of you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, so so then, so then I left, but it took, <laughs> it really took six years from yeah. the time when I left to the time we did our. First. Okay. So, so, okay. So let me paint the picture here. We got, I love, okay. You're grinding hard. All right. 15 years deep investment bank. Okay. Got it. You're 43. Kind of, you know, kids are young, still running around. I mean, you know, the, you know, there's still stuff happening at home. Uh, that's not empty nest. Right. I mean, so uh, you got all this. Stress comes down because you know you're doing the right thing. I figure that's that's probably a sign for the big man upstairs that you're doing the right thing when that you know you get that confirmation. But now you're thrown into a different kind of fire, right? Where you said it like took six years, and you were talking about years before you got a paycheck. You got to tell this story of of the struggle. Yeah, yeah. So I met my my partner's name was Nathan, and I met him maybe eighteen months after I had left, and I had you know worked on a few deals and I had some wealthy entrepreneur guys that I was kind of looking at stuff together with. And, and then I met Nathan and, uh, and I recognize this is a really smart guy. This, this, yeah. this guy is worth sort of team, teaming up with. Okay. So, so we teamed up and then we formed a, a little advisory board of senior executives in the industry you know, just people to look over our shoulder and help us with contacts and things sure. like. And then one of them happened to be uh, had a have an affiliation with what was then the Bessemer Group, 
the private equity arm of Bessemer Holdings. Yes. The Phipps family, that may not be a name that is familiar to everyone, but Henry Phipps was Andrew Carnegie's partner back, you know, around the turn of the last century. And so they have this huge corpus that, uh, you know, 300 family members share. And uh, and so they, they were very active investors, and they had a private equity arm. That eventually morphed into what became an independent private equity firm called Lindsey Goldberg, mm-hmm. uh, which, which uh, somewhat coincidentally was led by two former Morgan Stanley guys, uh, Bob Lindsey and Alan Goldberg. Oh, yeah, okay. And, and uh, so anyway, this this member of our advisory board and introduced us to that group and we went and told them our story and they said well i I was sort of backing everything i was paying for the office and you know paying these there were two guys actually at the time and paying them modest salaries out of my you know kind of out of my pocket and it it wasn't a whole lot of money and i you know i had i had a you know decent little nest egg by that time having spent that much time in the bus banking business but they said, well, we'll pick, you know, let us pick up those expenses. You know, that, that, well, great. <laughs> right. I like the sound of that. So they picked up our expenses. And, uh, but even after they came on board, you know, they really liked our strategy, but it took us a long time to, uh, to actually land the deal. And how many years did you say you went without a paycheck? Six years. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I mean, from a guy making a big paycheck. Without like any real, I mean, you know, maybe a few stock options or whatever, but not really like big ownership in a private company to like all equity ownership, zero income. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when got to the point, uh, Paul, my son, Paul, who's Kale's friend, we'd get, we'd go, uh, add to the restaurant and, uh, well, can I get the steak? And I said, well, why don't you get the smaller one? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. And, uh, We're yeah, putting it on the credit like, card. Yeah. So we didn't, we didn't suffer too much. I no, no, I know. But okay. So you get the business going uh, talk a little about the business and the, uh, and the, and the eventual exit of these. these so our, our basic strategy was to find existing underutilized assets that we could buy on the cheap and then bring a new commercial focus to it, typically buying something from a big company that didn't fully appreciate what they had and didn't have a lot of creativity put into it, sort of a non-core business to them. Yeah. So we, that's what we did twice. We One was a collection of assets in, uh, in Louisiana that was owned by the Williams companies. Yep. And it's uh, pipelines and salt dump storage that supported the petrochemical industry of Louisiana. And it had a lot of a lot of good hardware that that we were able to purchase incredibly cheap, but there was also just a tremendous amount of low hanging fruit that we could bring new commercial opportunities to it and opportunities for investment. We we had the distinction of being the smallest deal that Lindsey Goldberg ever did uh, ever did. Our first the first acquisition, this collection of assets, was like thirty million dollars. Probably had a replacement cost over a hundred, so we bought it really cheap. But we ended up spending almost three hundred expanding it over the next several years, and uh, and then in the course of doing that, we established relationships with everybody in the petrochemical industry. Uh, you know, we were moving product for them. We were transporting ethylene and propylene and and uh, ethane and a whole variety of petrochemical products through pipelines, and then storing it in our 
storage operation. So we got a reputation as being people, you know, who would do what they say and could be relied on. And those relationships proved to be very valuable when we did our second business, which was to build a propane dehydrogenation plant. And that's the process of turning propane into propylene. And propylene is a building block for a variety of petrochemicals. It goes into everything from paints and coatings and plastics and, you know, auto parts. And you look around your office and anything that's not wood or metal or glass is probably made out of some petrochemical. And, and so a very, very big commodity product, very important product. And we introduced this new process. This process had been used other places around the world, but never been used in the U.S. We introduced this process to the U.S. We were the first, we built the first plant in North America. Since that, that time, it's kind of become the standard for propylene manufacturing in the U.S. and everywhere around the world. But we built the first one. But we did it with that same model I described before. We bought, we bought an old uh, mothballed ethylene plant, that's a different type of petrochemical, that uh, was, was owned by Exxon on the Houston Ship Channel just out of Loop 610 on 225, and used the, that real estate and some of the operating units to build this new plant with this new process, and we're able to reuse a lot of that existing hardware that, once again, we bought for nothing. We bought this for $40 million and it probably had a replacement cost of $900 million at the time. And we didn't use all those assets, but the part that we did reuse probably had a replacement cost of $300 million. We spent another $600 million for a total of about $640 million to build this plant. And I'll skip the hard part. Well, let, let, let me just go back and put a bow on the first deal. Okay. All right, so you buy, you buy this, this asset for, you know, you know, 30 cents on the dollar, okay? You put a bunch of money into it some investors. Now you turned around and sold that. That was a good deal, right? Like that was a good deal. Wasn't a spectacular deal. You get a double on that. You give yourself, I mean, in baseball terms, I mean, if you want to share the numbers, feel free, but two bagger, we, okay. we, we had, I, I can't remember exactly what the equity was, total investment of about 300 million. We sold it for 600. Okay. Nice, nice double in that world. Right. A lot of the, if the private equity guys listening are going, eh, Nice. I mean, for the rest of the normal people, that's amazing. It's a, it's a single. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, probably a single in PE world. Okay, now, now we get to the second deal. You got a little experience. You got better contacts. Now, as you're building this thing, you, you talked about making some big commitments, and then 08 hit. Can you talk yeah. a little about that About that little period? So we, we, we had spent several years working on this deal, teeing it up, and finally got to... Uh, a closing in March of 2008, and and th this was sort of our second job to running the first business. But uh, we did all this while we still owned the first business. Oh, okay. And and uh, <clears throat> so we closed on the purchase of the Exxon plant in March of 2008. Spent 40 million dollars, and then and then we we had equipment delivered from 10 different countries around the world, and by the end of 08. <laughs> Uh, we had about $200 million of commitments to purchase equipment at uh, various companies around the world, and the, and the world was essentially coming to an end. And so, so yeah. some of the people on this podcast may not remember, but 
uh, COVID was nothing compared to OA. That is true. And and uh, stock market went down fifty five percent, and and it would it, it was is this the next great depression? That, right. That's the feeling that it had, and and it would have been. Uh, I don't want to get off on an economic yeah, yeah. tangent here. It would have been, except for some steps that people in the Treasury Department made at the time. Will but will, but you've got you don't uh, control any of that. You've right. got you bought this plant right. for forty million bucks. You got a couple of hundred million dollars in equipment commitments, right? And the bottom's right. Mm-hmm. So how did you get through that period? Yeah, and I'll also say that our margin in the in the business we were building, the margin was the difference between the price of propane and the price of propylene. Yeah. That, wow. That margin went to zero. Wow. During, during the price of propylene went down, uh, and it went down more than the price of propane, and so. You know, it, it, I think it actually went negative briefly, and uh, some people in the industry were were jokingly saying the only way that plant's going to make money is if they run it backwards. And uh, so, wow. so it was <laughs> to say it was stressful was <laughs> yeah. an understatement. Yeah. And uh, and and you, you and and it was hard. You know, in the midst of it, it was hard to. It was hard to see how it was going to work out. It was it was really hard to visualize what the future was going to be. I, I got a interesting piece of advice by uh, somebody else uh, about that time because I was I was the you know the chairman. I you know I was the senior most guy in the company, and so people were looking to me. <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? Because we had hired people and they had left their jobs to come work for us for this startup. You know this great story that we've had, and <laughs> they see what's going on. Ooh. And and uh, a, a leader I really respect said that he went something through something very similar. And some advice that he got is two things: number one, you have to say to your people, you you have to express reality. Yeah, you have to convey reality. You can't you pretend things are not challenging. Right. So that's number one: convey reality. But number two is give hope, mm. and and that that will keep people working. That will keep people, you know, on task. And that was kind of hard to do because I was losing hope. Exactly. <laughs> you have to sort of uh, pretend yeah. a little bit there. Maybe. Yeah. So, uh, but but you know, fundamentally, the way that we got through it was every day you would say, "Okay, what do I have to do today?" Yeah, I like that. What are the tasks that have to be done today? I can't figure out what's going to happen a year from now, but I know today I got to do these things. Right. And I got to go talk to these bankers. You know, we, we had, uh, we'd secured financing for about half of the, uh, purchase or half of the construction costs. So we had a $330 million loan from Societe General committed. And uh, we were scared to death that we were going to pull it because banks were pulling loans right and left. And uh, and we went to syndicate the loan. And, and you know, this was after the Lehman uh, crisis. Yeah. We went to syndicate the loan because they, they wanted to keep about $50 million of the $330 million and, you know, get 10 other banks in there. So we had 15 meetings with banks after the Lehman. And, and we, can tell the st- we could tell the story pretty well. We were pretty good at it. We got 15 no's. <laughs> wow. We were 0 for 15. And so 
Credit Suisse said, well, a deal's a deal. And so we're going to stick with it, but don't, don't ask for any, uh, waivers. Well, well, thankfully that one turned around. So can you talk a little about how that, how that finally, uh, turned around and exited? Yeah. So interestingly for re- for some reasons that are maybe too de- detailed for this discussion, yeah. shale revolution really helped us. It made propane, which was our feedstock cheap and abundant. And for a variety of reasons, it actually made propylene our product more scarce and the result was margins ended up being much higher than we originally anticipated and by the time we started up in 2010 the world had kind of righted itself yeah and but our particular space was at the sweetest of sweet spots so it took it you know it took a year or so to really get the plant lined out get all the bugs out but we were in a position in in uh by 2012 to take the company public and we did it in the form of a an MLP master limited partnership and at the time we went public we raised about 700 million dollars which at the time was the largest MLP IPO that had ever been done after we were maybe the largest MLP we did it in May of 2012 I think we may have been the largest IPO that had been done that may not be right we may have been second until Facebook went public uh, a few oh yeah I remember that. I remember that era. And now, and what do you think? Okay. And then I know that it got bought after being public for a couple of years, right? Yeah. So from, from capital in, what do you think if it was two X on the first deal, what do you think? What, what X do you think it was on the, on the full exit? Yeah. So, so on, on the second deal, uh, we, we over equitized it. We ended up having to put a little bit more equity in to keep the bank happy. Yeah. Uh, we ended up, we, we made a, about four times our money. Okay. Yeah. So we, Spent a total, I think the total in was a little over five hundred million of equity and sold it for a little over two billion. So that's, that's really an amazing story. I mean, this is such a classic, uh, especially our Texas listeners, and we've got a lot, a lot of them are gonna man, I'm going you're taking me down uh, memory lane here on a lot of these uh stories. But I could talk about this forever. But let me bring Kale in here uh, to talk a little We'll make the shift to the, uh, the the philanthropic discussion a little bit, which I know coincided with a lot of the business things that were going on. They're not one and then the other. But, Kale, come on into the discussion here. Well, man, I, I tell you what, for, for those listening, this is, a, this is a real treat and a lot of fun for me. The best, I think, maybe picture I can paint is imagine, you know, if growing up you've got a, a, one of your best friend's dads is, you know, plays in the NFL or something like that. But you know, you just, you, you know, as far, as far as you know, they just, they're a player and they go out and they play, but you get older and you want to hear the stories, but you never get to hear those, those, you know, stories from, from how they made it in the NFL. And that's kind of how I feel like a little kid in a candy store right now, David, as you're sharing your stories is, you know, from my perspective, uh, you were at the, the peak of, of, ever, of everything career-wise, and now I'm getting to hear all your war stories and it's just, uh, really, really fun. So appreciate you sharing that. And, and, uh, before we swap over to the to the philanthropy, there there's one other story. I, I've if if you're willing to share, I'd love to hear you talk about because I remember it. Uh, I, we might have been in college at the time, Paul and I, but it was when you were you know getting that plant up and running, and y'all had to get. I think correct me if I'm wrong. It was one of the largest pieces of equipment in the world for what it did, and y'all had to get it shipped over here and and to that plant, and it took. I mean, a lot of different moving pieces just to get that piece of equipment down the freeway and into the plant. 
You yeah. talked a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, there were, we had some gigantic equipment. We had these eight big reactors. They were 50, 50 feet long, 19 feet in diameter. And then we have what was called a splitter tower, which is 360 feet tall. And it was 29 feet in diameter. Yeah. And they were both manufactured in Malaysia. Wow. And so we had to get them from Malaysia to, to here. And so we got them built over there. They put them on big ships. The tall tower, they had to cut it. They built it as a single piece mm-hmm. and I tested it laying on the ground in Malaysia. And, uh, and then they cut it in three pieces and put it on three different ships to, to get it over. And then we reassembled it when it got back. But when they arrived, we were on the south side of 225, and the ship channel's on the north side. So they came in the ship channel by boat, and they were offloaded onto this thing called a Gohofer, which had 260 wheels and, and would go about three miles an hour. <laughs> but how are we going to get across the highway? And so they on like seven or eight or 10 successive Sunday mornings at two o'clock in the morning, they shut down the highway and took this thing over the top <laughs> and took the guardrail, you know, took the median out and brought it across and, and uh, put it on our site. And then uh, the crane that built the, the main tower, the splitter tower, was one of, the, one of the biggest cranes made. I think the boom was 460 feet, something like that. Wow. And we had to had to wait until it was not a windy day <laughs> to uh, to put those pieces together. Yeah. So it was it was fun to watch it. Well, thanks for sharing that story. And to me, I, I think it kind of speaks to maybe as we head into the philanthropy stuff, uh, a little bit of color on uh on just uh your your unique background skill set that maybe you brought into the philanthropy space. But I know that there's been so many things that uh you and the family have, have supported over the years, but the biggest one uh, being Yellowstone Academy. So maybe just tell us just a little bit about what that is and maybe the impetus that got that started. Yeah, so Yellowstone, uh, we just celebrated our 20th year. And for most of that 20 years, it's been a private Christian school in the Third War. And pre-K-3 uh, through the eighth grade, and we had our first graduates uh, from the eighth grade, uh, I guess about six years ago now and it's been very successful we 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 really target a true at-risk population about 98 percent african-american just because that's what the third ward is uh but almost all on the free and reduced lodge the first year we opened the median family income was ten thousand dollars a year i think it's about 25 now uh but still you know challenging situations almost all kids from single parent households, and uh, and we have just recently, <clears throat> after some real soul-searching, uh, decided to add a high school and do it with a charter school. And so the, the lower school is now pre-K-3 through 5, grade 5, and the upper school is 6, now through 8, but we're going to add a grade a year through high school, and that's a charter school, which means the state gives you a portion of the dollars that you need to run the school. Uh, sure. Up to this time, it's been all private philanthropy, and the lower, lower school is still all private philanthropy because that's necessary if you want yep. to get a Christian school. 
if, if you're if you're a charter school, it's nominally a state school, and notwithstanding you have complete latitude in hiring and firing teachers and culture and the curriculum, it uh, can't be can't be an explicitly Christian school. Sure. Well, and here we are, twenty years in. I mean, how far it's come is just amazing. I mean, you know, we, we obviously was there at the gala just just a couple of weeks ago getting to celebrate alongside everyone that's been supportive over the years. But how did it start? I mean, we, how did you, because I, I have, you know, it's hindsight 2020, we get to look back and celebrate, but I have to imagine there was a starting point in a, a you know, step, a huge stepping out of faith into what God was calling you. Where did that come from and how did that start? You know, I, I would actually have to go back even earlier. We didn't talk about this the other day, but when I was at Arthur Anderson, just out of college, I, I went to my um, a friend of mine's wedding party before he was getting married, and he was marrying the young woman whose mother was the founder of the Briarwood School and the Brookwood community. And Briarwood School is for kids with learning disabilities, and Brookwood community is for mentally handicapped adults to sort of answer the question, what happens when mentally handicapped kids grow up? Where they go, and, you know, their parents eventually die. Anyway, I went to this party and I met Yvonne Strait, who's the wallet who founded all this, and and I asked her how things were going, didn't know her at all. She told me what she was planning to do to start the Brookwood community. Hadn't started at that time. And oh, and I just thought that was that was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. Wow. <laughs> and so I actually Took a leave of absence from Arthur Anderson. They let me do it after busy season, and uh, went to went to work for uh, her, and uh, helped her develop some of the early promotional materials that described the the project, and helped her to raise some money. And so, for a couple times, I you know actually took leaves of ab- absence, and then eventually, when I knew I was definitely leaving Arthur Anderson. I left and went back and worked a few months uh, with her once again. And she was just a real, she was a real mentor to me and uh, just really taught me the value of uh, creating opportunities to solve problems. And, and that's, that's what she was doing. She was solving a problem. And the problem is what happens to mentally handicapped children when they become adults and their parents die where do they go who takes care of them? and so she's created this community out there that's really quite extraordinary and it, it just sort of planted a seed in me that you know there are all kinds of challenges in life uh and some of you want to address from a business standpoint some of them you want to address from a uh you know a social services standpoint and and uh they're both just as important and so so much later, when I was in that six-year period of time, when I wouldn't get paid between Morgan Stanley and, and getting our business off the ground, I had a lot of flexibility, time flexibility. And and uh, at that time, my son was playing AAU basketball in the offseason, and uh, we had these inner-city kids on the team. They were the talent. <laughs> we were Our kids were sort of along for the ride. But we got to know these kids and uh, just saw how challenging their lives were. I mean, their parents many times were not very involved. And uh, I don't think any of them really had a, a father in, in the picture. 
And, uh, but they, but we got to know them and they were good kids and we saw they had a lot of potential, but we also saw how many of those kids ended up going in a really bad direction after, uh, you know, they grew up. I, I had, uh, one of them that we got very close to has ended up turning out pretty well. He's, uh, he's uh, a cook at a restaurant. He's, he's doing great. He's, he's about your age, Kale. He's had security throughout to get to the place where he is, where he's doing great. Uh, but he, he, he told me where the six or eight kids that we used to play basketball with and what that, where they were now. Ooh. And I think three of them were dead. Oh, wow. And one was in prison because he held somebody up in prison in a wheelchair because he held somebody up and the person he held up shot him, Ooh. paralyzed him. But he ended up going to prison paralyzed and just seeing, you know, and th this was recent, this wasn't part of the original motivation, but it, sure. just to sort of illustrate the challenge. And, and so we early on just said, we got to change the trajectory for these kids. And so that, that was one thing. And then, and then I, I read a book by Chuck Colson, I think, which was titled, how now shall we live? And he just talked about different things that people were doing for the kingdom. And one of them, he mentioned a group in Detroit where a Catholic priest was making a talk to a group of businessmen. And Detroit probably had the worst school system in the United States of any big city. And this Catholic priest said, you guys got to do something about this. Don't leave this to the state or to you know, the school board, you guys fix this. Mm. group of those businessmen got us inspired and started three schools up there called the Cornerstone Schools. And and all I can tell you is reading that story, I can remember what side of the book <laughs> that wow. story was on. I thought about virtually nothing else other than we, we got to do this in Houston. What an amazing, you know, the, 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 the two, to summarize that, like the two, you're, those two stories are the two words. The two words that go to my mind is, you know, the seed that got planted all those years ago, you know, with Yvonne and then, and then this challenge that came from the book, you know, and then you were ready, you were at the, the right time. And then how did, you know, when you think about, because, you know, to get that off the ground, obviously took a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, you know, potentially a lot of initial investment. I mean, how did you, what do you think sparked for you that desire to be generous and, and and then call other people into it. Cause I know it took a community to get that thing going and, you yeah. know, and using your skill set to do it so sustainably. You know, that's a, that's a good question. And, and I don't really know the answer. <laughs> I can tell you this though. I said, said this the other day, uh, this thing, I didn't choose to do this. It, it chose me. Yeah. And once that idea germinated i thought about virtually nothing else until it was done and and then you know i did start kind of quietly talking to people about it talking to friends and everybody i talked to particularly some of my good friends everybody i talked to said man count me in uh that's that's fantastic and so we formed a board we started having coffees at people's houses just to talk about it but here's the story here's the vision you know, there was nothing, and um, it, but we started talking about it, raised a little money, and then, we, you know, two things had to happen to, to make it work, to get started. One, we had to find the right person to lead it, 
I don't know how to leave a school. And then second, we had to find a facility. We had to find a place. And we found that the right person in a woman named Kim Hansen, who was assistant principal at Second Baptist School, and she had also worked for the Star Pope Mission. So she had the perfect combination of education and compassion for uh, those living in poverty. And and so she came on board, and uh, what a, but, but on faith, we had nothing. <laughs> and and she said, we need to spend a year working on this, though, before we start, you know. And so for a year, we sent her around the country. I think she visited 16 different schools around the country to sort of develop best practices. And we raised money from, you know, friends to, to pay her salary and pay her to fly around the country and get smart on, on this concept. And uh, she came back with a plan it. And she and I wrote a white paper describing what we were going to do, what the need was, mm-hmm. you know, why, why it needed to happen. And, and secondly, uh, exactly how we were going to execute the plan. So we, it was a business plan and yeah. it was, it was well, well thought out. And, uh, and then, and then, and then we met a, she introduced us to a pastor, uh, an African-American pastor in the third ward who was building a new church. And in his new church, he had six classrooms that he was going to use for Sunday school on Sundays, but they were going to be empty during the week. So perfect marriage. And uh, we moved into his facilities, but pretty quickly outgrew those facilities. And uh, we ended up adding affordable buildings, but we were running out of real estate on his property for affordable buildings. And we were about to hit the wall. And then in 2005, HISD put the historic Frederick Douglass School up uh, for sale. They they spent $2 million renovating it in 2005, and then in 2006 decided to shut it down. Right. <laughs> and uh, and it, was built, it was built in 1926. It was 80 years old at the time, but this gigantic building. And, and so we bought it for a pretty good price in a, in a sealed bid. And... Uh, and then uh, occupied that building, and you know when we first bought it, we were we were adding a great year. The first year, we had three and four year olds. The next year, we had kindergarten. You know, after that, first grade. So when we entered that building, we didn't half fill 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 it up, but we ended up filling it up. And then when we a few years ago launched off on our uh, high school endeavor. We just built a beautiful new building right parallel to it, about the same size. Yeah. But modern and just spectacular. And we were able to buy up some more real estate in the area. So we've got a, we've got just a tremendous footprint and what in a part of the third ward known as the bottoms. Wow. And uh, so it's not, not too far from downtown, actually. And, well, and it is tremendous. I mean, what y'all done there is, is amazing and the impact that you've had. And, uh, you know, I just think the story of, of, of how you are so uniquely equipped to, to navigate all of the nuances of starting a school and dealing with government entities and just all that business, business experience that transferred into, you know, starting this nonprofit and getting it up and running off the ground is quite incredible. I mean, is that how you see it too? Or was it just, you know, another day, kind of like you said, what, what do I need to do today? How would that, there was, there was such a long period of time that the school it would it was a it was a challenge because we had to raise all this money the very first year the budget the very first year was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars and uh and uh 
and keep in mind, I didn't have a job at the time. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so that was pretty scary. And, uh, but the beautiful thing that happened was that the city of Houston, the community just stepped up and said, this needs to happen. And we, you know, we didn't, we didn't get too many huge gifts back then, but that very first year to meet the budget, one of my good friends gave a hundred thousand dollars. That was a, that closed, that closed the gap. And, uh, and, and then every year we were adding a grade. And so the, bu- the budget went up. It was finally, it peaked out at about $5 million when we got to the, uh, when we got through the eighth grade. And, uh, and, uh, there's, there's a whole long discussion on our philosophy about charter school and all that. Well, uh, yeah, that's probably a good segue, uh, David. I know we need to kind of move yeah. to the end, but it, but I think uh, one of the things we'll do is put a, a link, if it's okay, to uh, for a way to contact you, because maybe there's another David Lumpkins out there in another city who would like to pursue a similar strategy and talk about charter schools and these kind of things. And uh, maybe you can, uh, I'm sure you're already doing, paying it forward and, and talking about those to other people. Uh, and then we also, in a, in a previous uh, podcast, we had Casey Crawford on, who's doing a similar thing in Charlotte. So anyway, I would point people to David and, and Casey to, to talk about those things if, if, if God pricks your heart on, on doing something similar in your city or in, or in Houston and Charlotte and join in with these guys. But uh, with that, you know, the, the, David, the way we always like to wrap up this podcast is uh, with just a practical tip. Somebody's 10 or 15 years behind you on this journey. You know, they're walking the dog listening to this uh, podcast and they're like, wow, I really want to use my business platform and or what God's built uh, through me uh, for generosity. You know, is there a practical tip you might leave that person just on that on that journey? Yeah. So one of the best books I've read, one of the best Christian books I've read on the topic of work is a book by Tim Keller, the uh, the New York pastor called Every Good Endeavor. You should write that down. If you're listening to this podcast, write this down. Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. We'll, we'll put the, that in the show notes as well. Okay, good. And, uh, and, he, and he just talks about work from a Christian perspective. What, you know, what, what's the purpose of work? And you know, one of the concepts that come out of, comes out of it is that, that work is sacred. Yes. Uh, yeah. It is sacred in the same way our secular work is sacred. It's part of how God orders his creation. And, you know, we're his hands and feet to provide the food and services and shelter and all the things that people need. And now that we're such a wealthy country, we're also providing a whole lot of things they don't need, but that's, that's a different topic. Yeah. Uh, but, but work, work is, is sacred. And, and, um, and he also talks about how work and the things, the services we provide, the things we do are a demonstration of love mm-hmm. and that God, you know, created the world out of love and he provides for us out of love. We, the thing that is most important, you know, one of the Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? Love your neighbor. And, and so our work is a part of this. And, and so here, here's, here's my tip. I, I was asked to give a talk to a Christian group at Rice University a few years ago to their, their MBA program. And I sort of, you know, told my story and, and, uh, at the end they, they had a little question and answer period. And there was really only one question that any, anybody had, and it was, 
well, how, how do you maintain work-life balance? And, and that's, that's, a, that's an important question. It is an important question, but I'm not sure it's the whole question. There's, there's a whole lot more to the topic of work than just work. Like work-life -like balance is really important, but we, we live in a world today where Christians need to be in positions of leadership more so than ever before. And regardless of what your profession is, whether it's the accounting world, the investment banking world, law, medicine, politics, if we want to make a difference in this world, we got to be aggressive people. And I'm not talking about politically aggressive, and I'm not talking about be a, being a jerk on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. But we got to be in positions of leadership. And, and so in that book, Tim Keller uh, addresses this issue. And I'm going to read to you, I, I, I copied this out of the book, and I'll read to you exactly what he said about this topic of work-life balance. He said, and this is after he had talked about how, how the purpose of work is a, is a demonstration of love. Now, there's some theological background for that, and I'm probably doing a really poor job of uh, supporting that concept. But he, here's what he says on this topic. Think of the cliche that nobody ever gets to the end of their life and wishes they had spent more time at the office. And I'm sure you've all heard that. Nobody yeah. on their deathbed says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, it makes good sense, of course, up to a point. But here's a more interesting perspective. At the end of your life, will you wish that you had plunged more of your time, passion, and skills into work environments and work products? that help people to give and receive more love? If the object of work is love, can you see a way to answer yes to this question from your current career trajectory? Well, and so what I'm saying is work-life balance is important, and it's particularly important for people of faith. But we gotta, we, we got to still reach for the brass ring. We we got to set the high, the bar high for ourselves, and sometimes I think Christians are guilty of not doing that. Now, some of them go the other direction, but we need to look at our careers as part and parcel of our service to the kingdom. Mm. Well, you know, one thing I love about that, uh, David. Thanks for sharing that. Is one thing I wrote down as you were talking is look for unique ways to love your neighbor, and and I think and then kind of go for it, sort of. Accept the authority. If you've been given talent in business, I think one of the things Kale was doing a good job of teasing out, like he also gave you talent for complicated projects, and then he pricked your heart in the very beginning of your career, uh, and then along the way to do things. So pay attention to where he's telling you to love, and then use the skills you've got with all their might for going for it in business and going for it in a way to love your neighbor. And so I think you've done a great example of that. And we just thank you so much for sharing your story today. One final thing, if I yes. could. Another piece of advice somebody gave me that really resonated. And this, this is true for work, and this is true for service. A lot of people have good ideas. The difference makers are the ones who act on it. Mm. So if you have a good idea, you see a problem that needs fixing, act on it. All right. Mic drop. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank, Thank you. you.
And thank you, KL, for joining us today. And uh, thanks to all the listeners for tuning in this week to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.